0: How, I hope everybody is well. If you're watching online, hello. Um, hello to the, to the balcony. Hello. take my glass off. Can I see you? No, I can't see a lot because it's so bright. But anyway, hope everybody is doing really well. A couple of years ago, actually more than that, in 2006, I was at Theological College down south. I was a missionary to the south in a city called Oxford, that well-known place of gangsters in a city place it was. And a friend of mine said to me, he's trained to be a vicar as well, he's now a church planter in, um, in Asia, and he says to me, um, I've been invited to do a talk in Lemington Spa. Anyone from Lemington Spa here? Yeah, are you from, are you, yeah, go, just put, let's give him a round of applause. She's, she's from Lemington Spa, and um, you're a little nervous like this, but you went for it in the end, didn't you? So, sorry? Home church, Lemington Spa. Well, I, I, I better scrub out what I was going to say about Lemington Spa now. <laughs> Very nice place. So we went to, <laughs> went to Leamington Spa, I, um, and I thought my friend was uh, invited me to hang out with him. He actually uh, hadn't got a car, uh, so, years, so he, needed a, he needed a ride there. So I drove him in our what was very trusty Citroën C3, uh, which French cars are lovely if you've got one. But we found we couldn't have the headlights and the windscreen wipers on. So you used to have to make a very strategic decision. Did you want to be able to see, or did you want other people to see you? Uh, it was too stressful in the end, so we, uh, anyway, that didn't last long. But anyway, in those days, it was light, so we didn't need some, and it wasn't raining. So it was all fine, and we got there okay. So we arrive in Lemington spot. I hope this is not your home church. <laughs> I really hope it isn't, but I'm sure it's changed a lot since then. And so my friend, he, he's an amazing apologist. He's very, very good at speaking to people who don't have, have real objections to the Christian faith. And he was part of an organisation that, that did that. And so he does an amazing job. He's an amazing communicator. And I'm there kind of carrying his Bible. And with my hairstyle, I'm his security. You know, I'm there as his personal protection. So he does an amazing talk, and um, at the end of the, the talk, he's chatting to people, and people are coming forward. And I thought, well, I'll go get a drink. So I'm, I'm lining up at uh, the kiosk. There was, a, a, uh, there was an area that you could line up, and next to it was like, like we used to have here on the left-hand side, one of those things that you get outside garages, you know, what do you call them, like a door thingy. Everyone uh, everyone's speaking at once, like at school. I at a time. Roller shutter. Thank you. A roller shutter. That was up. And so there's a line. And the line is moving fairly quickly. There's quite a lot of people behind. You've got to keep your wits about. It. You don't want to create space because somebody might push in. And you don't want that. So I am waiting for my tin. I'm assuming it's free because it's a guest event and you're to bring your friends. That was a mistake, folks. I'm, I hope this is not your genuinely doing. Okay, really. And so we get to the end where you're getting your tea, and I requested two teas in church crockery. We've got it available here for a good price. It's straight from the 1960s. And as I'm hoping to get my tea, there is a lady who is uh, very mature in her years, and she looks like she's seen a lot of life. I won't mess with her, folks, but it she, she looked pretty, she looked pretty, pretty feisty, maybe because she was in charge of the money. And there was also, at the end of the counter, a margarine tub, one of those big ones, with a little slot cut out the top, and a handwritten sign that said, Suggested Donations. <laughs> I really hope this is in your church. 20p. And I thought, well, I've come to, with my mate, and he's the speaker, and I, have I got cash? I'm not sure. I'm not as good at carrying. Praise God for contactless. I tell you, that's really got me out of a hole. And I thought, well, they're not going to charge me because we're getting... Anyway, they they did want to charge. And the suggested donation was a bit of a fix, folks, because um, it wasn't suggested, it was mandatory. (laughs) And it was very clear from the lady that she was not... She held the tea there, but she wasn't going to release that tea till I found 40p to pay for the teas. And I begrudgingly, folks, with zero joy in my heart, as the 20p hit the, what was about 75 quid in there, dropping down. And I thought, that is my experience of this church in Leamington, Swell, which is definitely not your church, I can tell. It's funny, isn't it? Because what struck me was a bit of a lack of generosity, actually, but also in the experience, a lack of joy, and if I'm brutally honest, that is sometimes my experience of church life. I don't know about you, if you've been to church a lot, or maybe you've never been to church, but that's your expectation, that it's going to feel a little bit joyless. It's not a place where people laugh. It's not a place where people express themselves. It can feel joy-lust. That can be, and that is your experience. I'm really sorry that that has been your experience. It's certainly been mine in different places. And a man called Augustine of Hippo said that Christians, the Christians shall be an alleluia from head to foot. <laughs> okay, oh, you're good, you're so good. A man called Simon Ponsonby, who is a, a theologian in Oxford, says this, that Christians, by their very definition, are party people. And I think part of that definition means that we give away tea. (laughs) Yesterday, um, Helen did an amazing job of organising stuff uh, out in the streets. We wanted to bless people. And so the rain was lashing down. It was about four degrees, I'd say. But we went out, the piano was playing, we are blessing the community. There is something prophetic about giving out, giving stuff away with generosity, trying to be a joyful presence in people's lives. But there is, folks, isn't there, something of a paradox, because there is some of an expectation that Christ, the life of a Christian, as Augustine said, should be one of an alleluia from head to foot. Yet we are called to be party people. We know that part of us, are, if we have a story of salvation, that he's a story of moving from light into darkness, of transformation in our lives. Next week we're inviting Paul Cowley, who works at Holy Trinity in Brompton, who has the most amazing story of being on the streets at the age of 15. He's from Manchester, Don't... Hold it against him. But at the age of 15, on the streets, into a life of crime, he wrote a book called Thief, Prisoner, Soldier, Priest. And for spending time in a prison, it shocked him and it terrified him. So he joined the army for 18 years, rising through the military ranks. And at the age of 38, as a full-on atheist, knowing there is something in life, encountered Jesus Christ radically and has spent the rest of his life going around the world doing that most amazing work. He'd been awarded an MBE. By the Queen, for his work with prisons. That is a life of radical change. That is something to be hopeful. It's something to be joyful. And the reason we've invited him is because we wanted to create an environment where we could bring our friends to hear of something of the hope that we profess in Jesus Christ and how God can radically change lives. So there is something around. We all know instinctively... That our lives should be joyful because God, by his very essence and his nature, is joyful. I think Jesus probably had more of a smile on his face than we really appreciate. Often when he's depicted in stained glass windows, he's looking pretty dour. But when you think about the life and the radical nature he lived, I'm sure there was a smile upon his face. But yet, the paradox is we also experience real life ourselves with everyday challenges. And if you didn't listen to Alan Ward's amazing talk last week, you must listen to it. Because we all know that we live with this kind of tension of, yes, we're party people, kind of. But on the other hand, we live with stuff. Don't we? So what do we do? And it seems to me interesting that when Jesus talks about joy in John 17:13, he says that we might have the full measure of joy, John 16:22, that no one will take away your joy." And when he's speaking of joy in that context, it is about joy in the presence of challenge. Think, about, think around Isaiah 43, 1 to 5. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. And often one of the, the assumptions of Christians, often in the church, is that there, there won't be any fire. And as we're walking through the fire, we're not going to be burned. But you can smell the singeing of your hairs, and I meet so many folks, particularly post-pandemic, like, well, I never thought it was going to be like this. It's like, well, what book are we reading? Well, it's good to read it for that reason. Because when we walk through the fire, we won't be burned. When we walk through the rivers, they, they won't sweep over us. I think it means almost this, you're like, oh, it's up to your neck. But that's how life can feel so Often. So how can we have joy, eh? smiley, happy people, party, 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 with the reality of our lives? Does it, is it possible? Can we really have joy to the world or is that just something we do at Christmas? Joy is the presence of God in the presence of challenge. Responding to external circumstances with an inner contentment. About you, but if I sometimes in my experience I don't often respond to (laughs) with inner contentment. Sometimes it's just the exact opposite. And yet the apostle Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter four, verse ten. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this. Because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Verse 13. I can do all this through him, him who gives me strength. Amen. So it's probably worth saying when when Paul writes this letter, um, uh, Helen, when she read from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, talks about a kind of gloom. Um, It's fair to say that Paul is in prison. He's actually technically under house arrest. And so probably knowing that his execution is... Impending. So in the words of Alan Partridge, that could well be a low point. It's not like he is removed from experiencing life. That is one of the amazing things about the Bible. I remember when we were in Cambridge and I was a, as an associate of a church. I remember a lady who always came to our nine o'clock service and she was... Um, she needed some careful handling, folks, put it like that. And she'd was quite. she had a very powerful job, very, very bright in her day, so had no issue saying exactly what she thought. And she often did, whether you wanted to know or not. And I remember her telling me, well, I'm going for a hard time. The last thing I want to hear is sermons by Saint, about St. Saint Paul. And I was thinking, that's really weird, isn't it? Because when I read the Apostle Paul, I just see a lot of real life. So the apostle Paul, he's gone through beatings. He is, in other parts of the scriptures, he's listed the things of challenges that he has experienced in life. It's said that by the, towards the end of his life, his physical frame is, and they say he had a bald head. I like to believe that. I don't know whether it's true. I don't know how they do know, but I like to believe it. But it said that the physical beatings were so, so that he probably had some degrees of deformity in his physical body. I mean, he'd gone through significant issues in his life. So he's now writing from prison Awaiting, knowing, knowing where it's going, his execution, experiencing all those, these kind of external pressures and challenges of isolation, and yet his, this letter is the most life-giving, beautiful letter that you can read. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's not inward-focused. It is just this beautiful letter. And one of the things he's specifically addressing is that they have given him a gift—a man called Aphrodites has travelled all the way to Rome to give him this gift. And he himself has been really sick. And it has just blessed Paul's heart. He's just so delighted. He is moved that he writes this letter. I re- he says this in verse 1. I'm just going to go through three verses. I rejoice greatly. So first thing is, what is joy? One of the aspects of joy is generous friendships. He says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Rejoice is the deliberate act of celebration. And the Bible is littered with it. Rejoice. We're going to sing it loads over the next couple of weeks as we head to Christmas. This deliberate act of celebration. It is choosing to celebrate, even in the midst of the challenge. Secondly, he says this. You renewed your concern for me but you had no opportunity to show it. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He said, I rejoice greatly. That's it, he says this. He said, it's, um, the Greek word is to blossom again. It's this botanical metaphor that you have renewed, you, we, that they've made contact with him, that, that he's been in some sense of isolation. And it's like, as, 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 they, as they reach out to him, it's a bit like spring when you see buds on a tree. It's like this beautiful thing that it has caused him to have joy. It's this desire from the Philippian church to bless him without expecting anything in return. And this is where something's really significant about this, and it's worth just saying this thing. In this culture, in this context, there was some of the practice of patronage. And patronage defined every interaction you could think of, the way that you would connect with family members or kind of extended family members, how you'd extend with those you work with, how you'd extend with those who interact with your household. And patronage can be boiled down to this, if, and I think Alan Ward said this, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. In some senses, every interaction is laced with a feeling, what can I get out of this? What can you bring me? So you can imagine that must, how wearing that would have been for every interaction to be, to be defined by that. You know, we see that a lot in the workplace. People are connecting because maybe they want something from us. And yet, what is happening here is this heart of generosity. A heart to bless for no other reason for the sake of blessing. And it causes Paul to experience deep joy. The source of that generosity is from the heart of God to reciprocate the Apostle Paul. So the thing is, if we want to experience joy... When people give stuff to us, not just presents or, or money, and this isn't, this isn't, uh, this isn't a point say so give to the Nehemiah Fund because you'll experience joy, or give to the general fund because you'll experience joy. It's a sense of when we give, when we orient ourselves away from us and our angst, and this isn't right, and when we move away from entitlements and frustrations and anger and you done this, to other people say, so say, how do I bless you? It actually releases joy in their hearts and it brings joy in your own. And so the question, that, then I read the thing, actually, if, if my, my joy levels are fairly low, how are my blessing levels? And, if, and if, I, if, if I don't feel others are blessing me, then perhaps it's because I'm not necessarily a blessing to be around. We all know folks around us who can be, frankly, unhelpful. Frankly, negative. Abound by those internal things that just draw us down and down and down and down. And yet, here's the apostle Paul in the most crazy situation, full of life. When I get old, I think I am already. I want to be like that. And then there's another thing that he, that, he, that he goes on to. Verse 11 says this. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So, so he's using kind of like poetic language here. You know, I, I've had a lot... I've experienced a lot of challenge. We know that he's experienced a lot of stuff in his life. We know from his history. We know actually even when he visits um, Philippi in Acts 16 and he he lives with Lydia and her household, they experience a good life. He has experienced the very highs and he's experienced the very, very lows. And actually that is reminiscent of a Greek philosophy of the time called Stoicism from a, a, a man called Zeno of Citium. Whatever that means, that's helpful if you're a pub quiz or not. But Stoicism was a really significant cultural philosophy of the moment, particularly that Philippi is a city where a lot of retired military people, they, they, they would land in that place because of the climate. And Stoicism is this, the simple definition is the the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaints. Let me read that again because I think it's probably, we might listen, oh that was the old days, just listen to this and think about the British stiff upper lip. The endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaints. I sound familiar? I've had quite a few friends I've met, particularly in London, and I was trained to be a vicar, who'd spent a lot of time in boarding school. And this was drilled into them. Show no pain. Display zero feelings. Keep your mouth shut. I didn't grow up in that world, but I grew up in a working-class world in the West Midlands, and we weren't educated in that way. But what was implied in our culture was, endure pain or hardship without the display of feelings, and with no complaints. It is a weakness in our culture. And it was an issue then, and it is an issue for us. And often it is Christianized, and lives amongst us, often unchallenged. And here's the thing, folks, it's ultimate goal is to live free from external circumstances. It's a cultural way of trying to find joy. It's about the stiff upper lip. It is about rooted in self-sufficiency. It is rooted in self-reliance, and its fruit is independence. Sound familiar? Fundamentally, it's rooted in my ability. To fix my own life. And then the Apostle Paul says this, it's just amazing, just a couple of verses, verse 13. And this verse, often taken out of context, it needs to be understood in the context of the first few. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So he's taking what is a common Stoic understanding of contentment. I've lived in this and I've lived in that. And people really go, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. That's kind of the cultural moment of the day. It's just like what we say on Instagram, just be you, be a better you, or that stuff, living your best life, whatever it is, whatever it is. They're kind of the, the cultural thing at the time. And then he says this, and then behind what the Apostle Paul is beginning to say, is he transforms this notion of Stoicism, which is about just kind of bedding in, pressing on, pushing through. And he says that is that for him, he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. He's rooted in understanding. Is that you, Siri? Nice to see you. In understanding the grace and the kindness of God. You see, Stoicism is rooted, has its roots into cynicism. And cynicism is the belief that somehow your situation will never, ever change. It's quite a hopeless place to be in, to be cynical. And so out of cynical goes Stoicism, where it says, well, this is the way it is, so I'm just going to try super hard. I'm going to make the best of a bad job. And there is some merit to that. But the Apostle Paul is rooted and believed in the cross and the resurrection. And the cross is this, that as Jesus Christ embraces the cross, the cross did not look good at the time. In the words of Rich Goodman, who was on our team for many years ago, he did a talk in the evening gathering. And he said this in his beautiful Scouse accent. Jesus had some hard times in his life. He did, folks. The crucifixion was one of those moments. The crucifixion is the it is the most vile form of torture it is the example of humiliation and Jesus embraces that so that we might know freedom and then the resurrection comes a couple of days later and the resurrection tells us that everything can change that even death itself is not the end the thing that we most fear for ourselves or our loved ones, becomes the gateway into eternity in our heavenly dwelling. In Romans 8.28, let me read this to you, because this is one of the fundamental theological ways that we understand what joy really is. And I should have marked it in my Bible. I know that's what you're all thinking, but I didn't. But this is what it says. And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been according, have been called according to his purpose. The idea that as, God's, as Jesus is raised from the dead, that now all of a sudden everything takes on a new perspective. That joy isn't just a feeling that we have at a party, or even the kind of ecstasy of a Sunday morning with a worship leader we love, with a great uh, bass player bringing the beat and a drummer that makes us feel good and we're rocking it out to go back to the drudgery of Monday. It's not just a top up for the week to get us through it. But joy is the, ex- the reality of God's presence. Believing in the resurrection promise that in the hardest, most terrible situation that we might face. That it is not the end. That the pit that you may live in for the diagnosis that has been devastating. There is a hope, resurrection hope, that God will work His purposes through it. And Paul turns stoicism on its head. He says, "You know, you don't have to press on through. You don't have to. You don't have to with all your might get through life. You can surrender to Him." And experience the freedom that surrender brings. And you can, and I can know, joy. That for Paul, it's not about being self-reliant. It's being Christ-sufficient. Embracing weakness and stuff that is hard. And surrendering it to him. Not, press on. Stiff a lip, this is the best broken leg I've ever had. In my small group, I'm going to say, there's nothing wrong with me. Your voice has gone weird, are you all right? (laughs) (laughs) Do we need to be praying and fasting? Because we live that way. Are you rock up at church? How are you? Yeah, fine, thank you. How are you? You don't look fine. I'm fine. I'm not going to tell you anything because I'm just going to stay over here and work it out myself. Back off. It's not what the Apostle Paul does. See, we can't hold on to disappointments in one hand. And in the other. The disappointments of living in a place of want. Oh, I want better weather. Phew. I wish my kids were something different, I wish we were doing this, or I want this, or my house is too small, or this is this, and this isn't happening, and this isn't happening, and it's just all-consuming, and it's knackering, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. Paul, the apostle Paul kind of surrenders to his circumstances, because if he was here, he'd be singing the sovereign over us in a sense of, I can't do anything about this situation, so I'm just going to surrender this moment. Or it may be on the other hand, there's a sense of wealth, that like you've got wealth and you're sufficient, and what about the money and you're fearful? of How's it, how's it going to work out? So you just live in a perpetual state of control. Because might, life might not go the way you want it, so you're spinning perpetual plates all the time. The kids, okay, okay have we got enough money? Well, have we got enough life insurance? What, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And it's just like, learn humility, which means it's that everything I have comes from Him. And so if everything I have comes from him, I can live in a state of dependence upon him. So maybe today, on one hand, he's, so here is the disappointments that I'm genuinely living with right now. Maybe nobody knows. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your kids. I watched a beautiful documentary of Paddy McGuinness and his wife wrestling with their, all their children have autism. It's just the most beautiful I would love Paddy McGinness comes to, come to this church, and he can sit next to Dan Walker on the front row. Ah, oh. <laughs> Paddy, if you're watching, you're welcome. A sense of just a parent's heartache for their child, and maybe that's for you today. It's just like it's just not what I wanted it to be. And there's just something about saying, God, I give it over to you, and as I give it over, I surrender, and I say, Jesus. I pick up joy, which is the truth of contentment. That somehow, and I don't understand, and we sometimes we have to give up the right to know. But God, somehow, you'll work it through. You'll know, Chris and I are part of our journey, and we talk about this openly because I think it's something that we don't of, that often isn't talked about in in culture. Certainly not in the church is one of infertility, and people will seek us out often often heartbroken because they're struggling to, to have children and, and often, what my, often what I think what I've come to accept is this is sometimes you have to get to a place and this is really painful and it's really hard but you say God this is my vision for my life kids and I'm going to have to surrender it over to you because if you don't hope deferred makes the heart grow sick and I've seen a lot of people walk away from church in absolute, utter disappointments because God did not come through on the things that they wanted. And sometimes we have to give her over to pick up the joy. There was a moment when Chris and I were on holiday years ago when we had our Labrador, and um, our first one, and she said to me, we'll be okay if we don't have children. And that was a massive breakthrough because it was a surrendering of a moment to say, God will pick up what you want, pick up your joy. Don't think I have this sorted this morning. I go through, I write out my talk for needs. My son came downstairs early. He's always the first one up. And he's, he's giving me some feedback and where he gets it from, about his presents. They weren't, his birthday presents were not what he wanted, so he told me. Whilst he's in that, our second Labrador, who's 10 weeks old, has got herself wedged under the sofa, and she's chewing, good, like her, becoming like her predecessor, and in that moment, I, what is flowing out of me is not joy, folks. It's like, oh no, the dog is eating the sofa and you're complaining about your birthday. Sometimes when we experience these things, what flows out of me is not joy. But place, moments like these are a time to have a kind of divine reset. And Advent is a time to have that divine reset where we come back and say, yes, we're preparing for Christmas, but yes, we're also preparing that you will return in power. And Jesus, that I bring the things that are heavy on my heart. Surrender them to you. Knowing that if I surrender the place of the cross, which is the very place that looked terrible, but in the place of resurrection, raised his body from death to life, can take a man from Salford who'll be here next week it looks terrible going one way but the Lord Jesus Christ then counters it in life and raises up a man who under the power of the Spirit takes prisons all around the world that's the gospel folks that's joy and I wonder if Jesus wants to say something to us about our stoicism that needs to be surrendered and repented of and to take up Out in the place acknowledging our weakness, but also reveling in his beautiful spirit that brings life and strength, that we might know joy. And then maybe our hearts cry this season, maybe that people around us, in our workplaces and our neighbors, may encounter the joy that the angels sing of. Let's stand.